Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kale and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody. It is 1 p.m. on the West Coast. It is Friday. It's time for your favorite podcast, the Veteran Founder Podcast here on the Startup Radio Network. I am your host, Josh Carter. And this week, first of all, if you're new to the, the program, welcome. We are excited that you're here. Every week, we get a chance to talk to amazing entrepreneurs who have that one little extra thing on the resume, and that is service to our country. This week, I'm excited because this entire episode is going to be introducing you, our amazing fans and community, to our new co-host, which is Cynthia Kao. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh, for having me. Yeah, I am so thrilled to be doing this because when we first started our program, we did the same thing. And, uh, and it was nice to just kind of introduce everybody to our backstory and what we've done in our career and why it matters that we're here. And so for you, you've taken a little bit of different approach. We were just talking about that a few minutes ago about how you got in the military. So I want I to just start right then and there is what you got out of high school, you went to college, like what prompted you to get into the military a little later in life? Yeah, so my story is uh, a little bit unusual. It's very non-traditional. And, you know, as my mom says, I never do anything in the right order. <laughs> so I actually grew up in Canada. I'm from Toronto, Canada, originally. Um, finished high school. You know, I, w I had a music career. I'd been performing since the age of 10. Um, went to school in New York City and really didn't enjoy it. I mean, it was kind of something that was thrust on me since I was, uh, you know, three years old, loved music, but it just wasn't my calling. And I always wanted to go into media production. I wanted to go into film and photography and be a journalist. And, you know, at that time, it just um, wasn't really set up for me that way. And in a turnabout events, you know, I um, decided to abandon music altogether, went into social work, um, really wanted to make a difference with my life and, and help people around me that um, were struggling with multiple issues. And so right after high school, you know, after trying to figure out what my major was, eventually I went to University of Toronto um, in, in on-site in Toronto, got my bachelor's degree. And, um, you know, part of me had always wanted to join the military, but I think I came from a very traditional family where um, I'm one of only three girls in my entire extended family. And that just wasn't encouraged. I was in sports and, you know, my dad said, well, music's your life. So that's what you're going to do. And so when I went into social work, I still kind of felt like, how can I serve? And I started working in the clinical field, specializing in trauma and addictions. And, you know, at that time in like the mid to late 90s, we... Um, this was in Canada. We had our Canadian forces were coming home from, um, you know, Gulf War issues and 9-11 hit. And my husband at that time, he's American. He said, you know, I, I want to go active. Um, and so that's really what we did. Like I became an active duty military spouse and that desire to serve was still there. So as I was serving as a social worker, working with behavioral health, working with families, um, working with my community while we were stationed Oconus, you know, there 
there was there was this kind of thought of mine that like said, I know I'm helping people, but I don't know what I'm really doing with my life. Like, I don't know if I'm really helping anybody because, you know, most of the people that I helped were kind of forced to be there. They didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I needed to make a career transition. So really in 2008, I went enlisted in the Air Force and decided to go public affairs. And, you know, media had always been a part of my passion. I had done um, some work with CBC Radio. Um, I I was a freelance photojournalist, but I never really made my breakthrough until 2008. So my chance was to serve my country, to be able to do media production within a military context. And I deployed twice as a media embed, once to Sudan during the Darfur crisis in a a humanitarian aid uh, operation, and then another time in Afghanistan. Um, Got out. In, yeah, Sorry, Cynthia, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I'm really curious. When you went to the 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 office, the recruiting office, and you said, "I'm ready to join," and they said, "Okay, what are you interested in?" You said photojournalism. Well, what was that conversation like? Because a lot of us, when we, when we go in, um, it's non traditional. I did the same thing. I went in because I wanted to be a 3D um, animator, uh, illustrator, draftsman is what they call it in the Navy. Mm-hmm. So these these sort of unconventional or less common routes that you take into the military. What was that conversation that you had with your recruiter? Oh, it's really interesting. First of all, I didn't. Um, tell my extended family. I talked to my immediate family. And of course, I was married to active duty at the time and active duty army. And he was like, don't go active duty because our marriage isn't going to last. And I, and I knew watching from dual military um, that we, we couldn't, we couldn't raise three small children, both be active duty and make it work long-term. So I knew that, you know, this was only going to be for a certain period of time in my career. I really didn't know how long it was going to last. Actually, I didn't even know I didn't even know if I would even be able to get into basic. Like I thought they were going to turn me away because of my age or, you know, because I'm active duty spouse. Um, But I went in and I said, look, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to go public affairs and I don't want to be an officer. And they're like, so you have a master's degree and you don't want to be an officer. I said, nope. (laughs) They're like, what, why are you doing this? And like, why are you 30 years old enlisting now? And I said, this is something I've always wanted to do. And I actually want to get out there and get the footage and get the stories. Um, And so they said, okay, well, you know, we don't have, so the Navy talked to me first and they were like, we don't have um, a slot for you, but we do have an active duty Intel position we'd like to get you in. And I said, no, I'm not taking it. You know, it was almost like the sweet spot of, I'm thinking about it, but you know what? I made a promise to my family. So no, I'm not, I'm not going active duty. And um, the Air Force said, okay, well, we'll take you and basically you be in the, the PA shop and you won't just be doing photojournalism. You'll be doing everything in, in public affairs shop, like working with the press, working on the website, creating the stories, editing, doing um, broadcast journalism. So that appealed to me more because I really needed to broaden my skill set, especially since I'd been working in social work for 15 years. Um, you know, I need to kind of get back on the horse and and do everything that I love to do, which is get out in the field, uh, get the story, do the editing, you know, write the pitches, polish everything up, and really kind of pitch it at a strategic level too. So um, working with AFN, that was pretty awesome. Working with all of the different uh, uh, mass comms and combat uh, combat camera folks from the different branches. Um, that's what stuck out in my mind. That's a, that's a memory that I'll, I'll never forget. And um, it's it was an incredible time. I'll. Say that my 
family was not very forgiving of me though <laughs> when oh, I had to go, you know, yeah. deploy. Um, especially my kids, they had a really, really hard time. It was it was yeah. heart wrenching to leave yeah. them. And I'll tell you one thing though: it is it, serving both sides, being in the service, and then being an active duty spouse. It was harder to be the spouse than it was for me to go and pick up, you know, everything that I had to do. Because once you do what you need to do, you you have your training, you deploy, you're kind of on this this battle rhythm. You know who's going to do what and who you report to. It almost comes second nature. But when you're a spouse, you don't know what's happening. You may not get that frequent communication. Right. Um, there's that constant, even when they're home, there's like, you know, debriefings and then going to the field to train and um, being away from family and friends having to move every three years so that was almost more heart-wrenching to me than it was to go enlisted and serve interesting mm -hmm. what what about the the when you got into the military and you were deployed what about the process surprised you or what what about the experience surprised you the most uh, I really didn't know what to expect the first time. And plus, so the first time I went, I was a media embed and it was not the traditional um, OIF, OEF. You know, I was in a, a smaller humanitarian operation. But once I got there, I realized that the smaller operation, even though it says it's it's peacekeeping humanitarian aid, doesn't mean you're any more safe because there was no active fob. You're literally dropped in a landing zone and you have a mission and you basically go um, be an embed to document the humanitarian aid drops. You're mm -hmm. also there to work with the local people. We had the uh, uh, refugee camps we had to go to. We had um, some health outbreaks, a leishmaniasis outbreak that was going on at the time they were trying to contain. Um, we had malnourishment and um, dehydration. So there were so many issues uh, that the, the, the locals were struggling with. I felt overwhelmed and there was a huge part of me like I'm getting the story but again that there was that feeling of what am I actually doing to help people yeah. you know so I kind of felt like I was back in that place where I was a social worker of like I trained for this to help other people but how am I actually helping other people and so I mean the only thing I could take away from it was I'm documenting the stories that need to be told. I'm documenting the people that had survived the genocide who are, you know, in the Kakuma refugee camps, uh, or they might have been abducted and taken as, you, uh, you might have heard the Sudanese lost boys. They might have been held as uh, child soldiers, recruited for uh, to be part of that. Um, they might have been part of, you know, SPLA, which is a Sudanese People's Liberation Army and forced to fight in the militia. So there's so many different things going on in that region that I was not prepared for. I mean, they kind of gave me a very brief rundown and a very quick language, you know, here's your language skills. Here's how you say hello. And like, here's how you navigate. And I had an interpreter for that. Um, but you're really not fully prepared. And um, when I came home, there was definitely a uh, mismatch of what I thought I could accomplish and what I actually did accomplish. And uh, a lot went wrong in a very short period of time when I was there. So um, just trying to make sense of it all and coming home and trying to get back into civilian life. Like, no, I was not active duty, but there was definitely a uh, kind of like a wall that I had to hit to go, how do I take that? Like, how do I remove that military mindset, take off the uniform and just go back to being a regular civilian because, you know, even though people say, well, you're a reservist, you're only part time military. But when you get deployed, I mean, that is a part of your identity. So 
um, it doesn't necessarily leave you. It may be easier to transition back to your old job, but I've also heard this from other people that were National Guard um, that, you know, they had a harder time just kind of getting dropped back because you don't have that time period to debrief. Also, when you're training, you're not training with the same people. Where you deploy and where you get embedded is not, you know, it's it's not the same squadron that you're training with for a year. You don't get to create those relationships. Um, so it's like you get dropped in and then you get pulled out. And that is incredibly jarring to suddenly transition from military to civilian life and then figure out Hey, what do I do from here? You know? Yeah. And then when you, how long were you in? How long were you actually, uh, your total enlistment? Almost six years. Yeah. I got out, I was injured and basically I couldn't really do my job anymore. And I was given the chance to reclass. I didn't want to reclass. So basically I took the jump and and got out at that point. And what was your transition like? Like what was, uh, how, how difficult for you was it to transition out of the military into to say your first job? Um, well, I, I was working prior to getting in um, the service. So I had 15 years of uh, social work experience, you know, as a civilian, I did my master's degree in clinical social work. Um, and it was almost ironic because I, because of the fact that I specialized in um, trauma and addictions, right. I suddenly saw that around me with my colleagues, with people that I served with, with uh, um, my husband's um, squad and, you know, people that were doing multi, because I also had to go through five different deployments as a spouse on top of my own. So um, just seeing all like what you know as book knowledge and then what you know in life knowledge are, it's almost like a coming together of, okay, this is what I know I have to do to pick myself up and get through all of that, you know, to get through the combat stress. Um, but then actually living it is a completely separate thing, to be honest, because I did not, I did not recognize in myself that I was struggling with combat stress. Hmm. Um, I had a feeling, but you know, it's almost like that clairvoyant, <laughs> the clairvoyant vision you have when you can see everything about everybody else, but you can't necessarily see when you're struggling or when y- you need help. And and that's why I really believe in that whole like veteran to veteran support, because the only people that can really truly help you is somebody who's been through it, somebody who understands right. and and they can tell you things that like, somebody else can't like you can have a social worker tell you what you need to do and it goes on in one ear and out the other or your parents or whoever else you know your spouse that loves you but when you have somebody who's been there like your battle buddy they truly understand and that was a humbling experience and to be honest i had um a fellow retired uh uh vet air force vet he was army rangers and then he went um air force national guard after and he actually said to me did you ever get tested for ptsd And I kind of gave him this look like, duh, I was a social worker. Like, why would you ask me that? Um, But he goes, you have all the symptoms. And it was at that point that I'm like, oh, wow. Like, how could, how could I not have seen that? You know, so 2014 was really a momentous year. That was a year, January, I got out. Um, I went back to grad school. I was doing my documentary film production. I did a double master's that year. I was creating a full feature film. Um, I was also going through a divorce. Like there were so many things that happened in that two year period that I literally had to suddenly confront myself and go like, who am I? 
because <laughs> yeah. I thought I knew who I was. I thought I had it together, you know, but all of a sudden I'm like, what do I really want to do with my life? And it was at that moment that Rebirth Media was born, my company that was born. Um, so, you know, coming to that place was not easy for me. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to run a business like and I had planned for it for 10 years time. I knew that all of the preparation work, everything that I had done up to that point in media production, everything that I had done through um, social work and understanding like user empathy and human-centered design, that was like a crash course through my life over the period of, of 20 years to lead me to what I do now, which is human-centered design for application and interfaces. And, um, and I also do like content production for um, video, radio, and, and, and film. So um, it's, it was like, all of those points came together. And I, if you were to tell me when I was like 15 years old, this is what you're going to do, my mind would have been blown. I would have said, no, like there's no way. Um, so I really think that you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater with your experience. And, you know, your experience as a, in the military doesn't ever truly leave you, but it can impact where you're going to go and the people that you're going to connect with for sure. How did it influence you as far as your decision to become an entrepreneur? Um, I honestly think that I just didn't fit in with a regular nine to five job. Sure. And by that, I mean, I could do it. I can do a nine to five job because that's what I do now. But I really wanted something that I owned in a perspective that nobody else ever thought before. So, you know, when I was looking at the creative field, you're either a creative communicator or you're in the IT field. And by that, I mean, you're a creative person and you work in media or you're a techie person and you're coding and developing and an engineer. And to me, I was both. So there really wasn't out there, there wasn't something out there that explained how do you put Cynthia together <laughs> in a job that takes my empathy skills, understanding how people think, how people use information, you know, including disabled vets. We have a ton of combat vets coming home with disabilities. They may be visually impaired, hearing impaired. How do they use and interact interfaces? Mm -hmm. People aren't really thinking about that. Um, and now I think we're forced to, right? We're, we're forced to take into consideration a wide variety of users and users' needs. And we're not just creating technology for the sake of making money. We're creating technology that people actually want to use that solves human problems. Um, and, and that's really where I specialize because I, I, I don't just understand the technical aspects of getting it done and going through the nitty gritty to, to develop a product, but I understand the overall like business development side, um, how would you market this? How would you communicate this? What would the workflow look like? What would the interface look like? So um, that's how I, I got involved in UI UX uh, design. And then what do you, as a, as a veteran, what do you think helped shape your mindset and has helped you uh, become a, an entrepreneur. You know, a lot of folks that we talk to on this podcast say that, you know, it's our ability to pivot quickly. It's our ability to do more with less. But what do you think it is that you took away from the military that 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 tool set that allowed you to be such a, a really effective entrepreneur? 
So I'd say everything that everybody's uh, talked about before on the show, like being able to um, work with other people and um, think outside the box and come up with creative solutions and work under pressure, those are all completely true. For me, my biggest takeaway is discipline. Because I'm a creative, I tend to be a free thinker. And, you know, even within the military, <laughs> it was almost a joke. Like, is KO going to show up to formation on time? <laughs> you know? I wasn't that bad, but it was, you know, I'm kind of like that person that just kind of goes against the grain. I don't want to be told what to do. And the military gave me the discipline that I needed to buckle down and get things done. Like I have a ton of ideas. I always have a million startups that I want to work with. But at the end of the day, it, that tediousness of having to write a report and go through expenditures, going through invoicing, like going through taxation, making sure all your personnel paperwork is correct, like onboarding a new person that you're working with, a contractor or an employee, um, ensuring that you're applying for grants. Uh, all of those things to me normally would really be like pulling teeth, but um, communicating with people as an effective leader, working with multiple personality styles, sometimes with client, most of the time with clients that you may or may not agree with, um, especially when clients don't know what they want. <laughs> if they don't know what they want and then they come to you and you, they go, well, you're the specialist. You're the one that's producing something for me. I've learned to communicate with um, many different people in different difficult circumstances. And especially that discipline factor of like, finish what you started, make sure that you delegate responsibility, um, learn how to say no and say, okay, this is the reason why. That's, those are all things I've learned in the military. That's awesome. Uh, a quick break. We've been talking to our new co-host, Cynthia Ko on the Founder Podcast. We will be right back after this message. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. And we're back. We've been talking to our new co-host, Cynthia Keho. I'm really excited uh, to dig into your business stuff because this is stuff I've, you know, we've talked a bunch, but I don't think we've really dug into this stuff. I'm, you have Rebirth Media, which you've been doing for a while. When you started this company, what do you think it was that um, you thought you what was the problem you were going to solve that you you set out to solve? So originally in 2014, when I established a company, um, there was a need for communications, a bridge between the communications world and the IT sector. And that really didn't um, exist. You know, a lot of the IT companies were hiring big names, McKinsey, um, Deloitte to solve some communication issues. But a lot of those folks um, didn't really understand technology and didn't understand what it meant for, um, you know, innovative, innovative technology, especially in 
in the sector of like, say, entrepreneur, social entrepreneurship or, um, you know, global development, which is my background. So I, I came from um, a GS position, actually, the year that I transitioned out of the military as a reservist, I was also a GS over at um, USAID. And, um, and at that, people what a GS is. So general service, it's a government yeah. civilian. And yep. from there, I really built up and helped establish the Global uh, Development Lab. At that time, it was in its infancy. And, um, you know, it's funny because when you're you're starting a project, you're starting um, a, a group or initiative, you don't always see the reach of where it's going to go. You know, at the beginning, yep. it's just like this little seed you're growing. You're like, yeah, cool. All right. And there's a lot of people getting excited about it. But you don't ever really know how big it's going to get. And all of a sudden now you find out like, oh my gosh, it's grown. And I also had an opportunity to work at the Pentagon um, to work on the Defense Innovation Unit. At that time, it was called DIUX, Defense Innovation Unit um, Experimental, because it was uh, um, a Secretary Carter initiative. It hadn't really fully gotten off the ground yet. People didn't know if they were going to get fully funded. And now it's this like huge initiative. And so at that time, when I started it, it's kind of like your at the grassroots level, and, and that's what I really wanted Rebirth Media to be, was a grassroots company that targeted um, innovation, uh, you know, technology, global development, and understanding content, understanding users. So, you know, uh, that first couple years was very rough. I didn't really have any support. I definitely didn't have the Veteran Founder podcast. I didn't have Operation Code. It was just me and myself and, and trying talking to other founders. Um, some of them were not prior service, you know, there were civilians. And so there was a lot of like treading water, <laughs> treading water and taking in water and going, oh no, okay, I don't want to do that. Let's not do that again. Let's let's change directions and figuring yeah. out and pivoting like this didn't work. Okay, what's another thing to do? And um, I got, I started off with a bunch of um, grants because I was primarily working in, you know, um, the TV and film sector, but I created content for National Geographic, for Google, for uh, Nature Conservancy, State Department um, because I understood content. So I had a lot of like grants that I worked off of and then I was just able to kind of build my credibility, build my network. Um, people got to know me. I didn't do any special magic. Like I didn't really know the power of ad campaigns and like, you know, conversion clicks. Like I didn't know that. I mean, I did, but I didn't really put a lot of money and effort into that. It was mainly just networking and being myself and talking to people about what their pain points were. What is it that you want to solve? Uh, what is it within your organization that you that you want to achieve? What's the vision? Where do you want to go? And for me, really, it's not even about the business, like get it deal, like get it done, sign it get the contract. It was mainly just like, let me have a, a coffee with you. Let me sit down and talk to you about what are the things that you're passionate about? What are the things that you're doing right now in your job? And that has landed me so many opportunities. Like if you're trying to help a friend out, you want to know how can you really resolve some of their um, problematic issues uh, professionally? And and how can I learn from it at the same time? So at, I wasn't doing this because I really wanted business. I was doing this to grow myself. What can I learn that I don't know today? And what can I learn about this specific industry that I don't know today? So um, I kind of 
push myself out of my comfort zone a lot. I felt like the first four years was just stretching and learning and, you know, wrote memory work and just churning out through late nights and making those connections and going to events and being part of professional organizations like women in film and television and, you know, um, meeting other women founders, which was also really hard for me because most of the founders I had met were men and I hadn't met many veteran and female founders. And so it was very isolating for many, many years. And, um, so really in 2018, I had the opportunity to expand. I was literally um, given the opportunity to put in a contract for NATO and um, to revamp five of their portals. And um, that's when my work in digital design really grew. I had already been doing it for a number of years. But, you know, previous to that, I was just more known in in TV and film Um area. And uh, actually, I, I won the contract. I was shocked. <laughs> I won the contract. So I went to Belgium, lived in Europe uh, for a year and created, you know, redid all of these portals. Some of them were classified networks. Some of them were unclass. And I grew as a person, but I literally pushed myself to see how far I could go where I didn't expect myself to be at all. That's interesting. When you were, when you were growing this business, how how important was it to you to network? Because you talked about like, you know, trying to find your group of people that you could sort of help lift you up and, and be a part of this group. How important was it to that that you to seek that out? Um, honestly, at the beginning, I wish somebody took me under their wing or I wish my older self would come back and tell me, um, don't be afraid to talk to other women about your experience because there's this idea and it's a false idea that I find a lot of young women go through, which is you can't trust people. So don't talk about your ideas because somebody's going to steal your idea. And so yeah. what happens is you isolate yourself, right? And then you don't, you don't open up, you don't create that network. You don't um, ask people for help, which is the worst thing you can do as a founder. It's very typical for founders not to ask for help. But what I found myself doing in those early years was kind of like isolating myself on purpose because I didn't know who to talk to and I didn't know who to trust. And I didn't know who to say, like, I'm really struggling. <laughs> I'm really struggling and I don't know what I'm doing and I need help with certain areas. And I think humbling yourself and being able to ask for help is one of the biggest areas of strength that I've seen for, for people who are successful, who are, who have been able to grow their business, who do well. Um, but I, I didn't know that those first few years, I had to figure it out the hard way. And so one thing I really do, one, one, one thing I'm really, really passionate about is helping military spouses because military spouses often, you, they don't have a career of their own. They're moving all the time. You know, it's really hard to find a portable career, um, but they don't often see themselves as entrepreneurs. Um, they don't hmm. see themselves as somebody who can start something and leave a legacy for others and be a leader. And I wish I was able to say that about myself. But now that I've gotten through all of those difficult years of trying to churn it out on my own, I'm trying to give that back to the community so that if there's other women struggling out there like I was, then they shouldn't feel ashamed to kind of keep everything to themselves or not feel like they can talk to a community because that's really empowerment to open right. up and say like, hey, I don't really know what I'm doing or how did you guys get licensed or how are you navigating tax issues if you're working in different countries like I had to do? Um, you know, how do you navigate like being uh, double taxed or having to um, deal with a SOFA agreement if you're in Europe. Um, 
So, I mean, those are all really interesting things that you figure out as a founder. Um, but if you have somebody to help you, or if you know who to trust or you know who to network with, uh, that's, that's just gold, you know? So, so now what I yeah. do is like, I try to connect with other founders. Um, we do a once a month founders roundtable group, which you're part of, but, you know, growing that group and being able to have other voices, diverse voices is really important to me. Cause I think that that will help, uh, grow new entrepreneurs for sure. Yeah, no, I and, and yeah, the group you run is is really important. When you talk about the business that you started, how different does it look now than when you started? Is it basically the same offerings? Is it a more robust offering? Because it's more of a service, not selling a a software platform or anything like that. It's it's more of a services company, right? Yeah, for sure. It's a it's a yeah. services company. I work a lot with startups to um, identify a product, you know, or like I've worked with um, um, entrepreneurs that run a mobile app and they need UI UX work done, um, or they need consulting. So the majority of my work is is uh, digital consulting, and and strategy and development of uh, of their business, of their model, of you know um, the user interface. Um, so it's not just hey, I'm going to take this design and create a mockup for you that's going to be you know conducive to your goals and where you want this application to go it's more like what's your business model and what's your vision for where you want to take this and it's been really interesting because i like i said i didn't foresee myself going in this direction it just almost was a natural fit for me to take into consideration like my background and my skill set and how to work with people you know but yeah. again every time i i work with a client it is i end up becoming friends with that client you know and uh we always end up connecting or talking after the project's completed. Um, so for me, it's really exciting to be able to grow other people's vision. It's not just like, hey, I'm producing a platform or I'm producing a piece of software that someone else can use. It's it's, And then it's my name on it. It's mainly like, even though my name's not on it or I've been like branding something or creating a project that is under a completely different business name that's I don't own it, I still had a hand in it. You know, I still produced it. So um, that's really exciting for me to see too. Yeah. So the one thing we ask all of our entrepreneurs on the program is what's that one thing that you've screwed up so bad that you're like, man, I'm never going to do that again because it almost scuttled everything. I know, you know, and I've said this pretty much every week, but entrepreneurs, we make a lot of mistakes. So it's, I'm sure it's hard to pinpoint one, but there's always that one event, that one pivotal thing that, that if it, if you didn't fix it, it was going to change the trajectory of your business. Can you think of one thing? Yeah, <laughs> this one is a, is a heavy one. Um, early on, this was like my first year, I made the mistake of making, not ensuring that all of my legal paperwork was done with the client. And I just took him at his word. And um, he didn't pay me, but also he threatened a lawsuit on me. Um, I delivered the product as he, you know, wanted it. It was exactly to specification. He was really happy with it. He even wrote emails like saying how proud he was of it. And I hadn't heard from him after six months, like, okay, I delivered the product, it was done, right? And he like, didn't pay me the full amount. And I had to chase him down. And then he kind of, it's almost because it was my first year, I didn't take myself seriously. And so he didn't take me seriously. Sure. Um, and so I think he knew that he, he, I didn't have my ducks in a row. And uh, six months later, he suddenly emailed me this nasty gram and said, 
like this was not up to par and I want you to edit, but it's, it's going to have like 50 different edits in it. And I let them know, you know, this was delivered upon the delivery day. You were happy with it. We completed it. You still haven't completed the transaction. You haven't fully paid out what we agreed upon, but because I didn't make sure that he signed a contract, I couldn't really go after him for it. And then on top of that, I said, I can certainly re-edit this for you with the new specifications, but this is how much it's going to cost. It's going to cost this amount for labor and then this amount for delivery again and this amount for the special effects. And um, and I let them know, like, unless you pay your, uh, your owing balance, I'm not going to be able to start that work for you. And he was just a bully. Like, and I should have known at that point to call a lawyer right away and basically like had my lawyer handle it. But because I was a newbie, I got threatened and I kind of fell into that whole trap of, okay, well, I'll do this for you, but you know, make sure you pay me. And I learned from that. Like after that moment, I'm like, always, always, always default to this is a standard contract. This is what we signed upon. This is the agreed upon um, price. This is the agreed upon specifications, you know, and then obviously if there's wiggle room or something wants to be changed, you can always add to that and say, okay, well, you get three edits. And then after that, we're charging you for labor. Um, if there's a, any new functionalities, we'll add that on for labor price or it's a task order or what have you. But, you know, because I was so early stage at that time, like I, I said, downfall was not asking for help, not having any mentors to look to, but also not really knowing, like just not educating myself. Um, so that was a very big learning lesson for me. It's hard. You know, I, I agree. I, I think um, when, when we started building Brightwork, we had a really incredible lawyer. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, when they're going into business, think the sun is amazing, the sky is blue, bird chirping, they think the best. They don't think about the worst. And the lawyer's job is that, right? The lawyer's job is to think about what if everything goes pear-shaped and how mm -hmm. to protect yourself. And so... I've said this on the program a bunch of times, but a good lawyer is worth its gold because they're going to put in place things that you don't even think about because they've seen it a hundred times. Yep. So um, it's a really unnecessary or daunting task to find some sort of lawyer or legal help, but not having it is probably not worth it. Like I don't do the right, but definitely get a lawyer. <laughs> like, yeah, that, that's how important it is. I did end up retaining a lawyer after that. And actually, when I brought up everything to him, he's like, just don't answer. They have nothing. They have absolutely nothing. And you're losing sleep for no reason. And so yep. I should have had that already. And that that was a note to myself, like, don't do that again. Um, <laughs> but it was almost yeah. comical because I was so, I was stressing out. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my business. And he's going to sue me. And like, I could see myself going into foreclosure and in debt forever for the rest of my life. And it became this huge thing in my yeah. mind. But then once I talked to the lawyer, he's like, no, <laughs> he's got nothing on you. Like you delivered right. everything. Like, in fact, he owes you, like you could probably go after him um, and make sure from now on, like you contact me and have everything in a row. The other thing that people don't think about, because if you're in technology, um, you don't always think about this, but um, making sure your intellectual property is registered and copyrighted. You know, yep. there's so many newbies that I find like new coders, new developers, new engineers that I work with on a daily basis who are just jumping at the chance to create something 
something. And then they work with these startups and they're not guaranteed any equity. They don't have anything signed. They're told, hey, well, we do have money, but we don't have money right now. So could you work for me for free? And I usually, what I usually do is when I tell them, make sure that when you're developing somebody, somebody else's intellectual property, you are also part of that intellectual property. You're developing right. this product for somebody else that later on they can sell and make millions off of. So keeping that in mind, like, yes, people want to find work and they want their opportunity, um, but protect your assets and protect what you know, because you, you're an asset. Like you, nobody knows what I know. You could teach it. You know, I could teach it to them. I can give them tools. Uh, you could go to school, but um, they don't have the exact same skill set as me. They don't have the personality as me. You know, they don't they don't have the life experience that I do. So every person's perspective is absolutely unique. And what you bring to the table is worth your salt. So know what you're worth and ask for what you're worth. It's great, great advice. What, uh, what do you hope this thing becomes? What do you hope uh, Rebirth Media is in the next, you know, five to ten years? Honestly, I'd like to grow it to the point where I'm, um, I'm growing other people. Like the type sure. of person I am, and it's not just to grow a business in terms of like how many millions of dollars do I rake in, and 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 then how much equity, uh, how many assets do I have? It's it's about people. Um, how many more lives am I going to touch? How much content am I going to create? Like what kind of documentaries am I going to work on? What products am I going to develop that? actually mean something to somebody. That's how I measure success. And right. so, you know, in five to 10 years time, I want to be able to see like, hey, this is the project that I worked on that helped somebody be able, who's paralyzed, like be able to um, be able to communicate with somebody just through their neural network, like, you know, or um, somebody who's completely blind, like how can they create a drawing and be able to translate that into, into something that is um, tactile. Like, so these are the, the, the leading edge of technology. That's some of it's not exactly there yet, but it's really exciting to look at. And um, I don't understand how everything is put together, <laughs> you know, but I, but I love learning with different people who are the experts in their field. And, um, being able to be part of a team and make that happen, that's really what drives me every day. It's not just me doing something on my own. It's who am I going to connect with tomorrow? What am I going to create tomorrow and collaborate? You know, what kind of projects am I going to produce? So yeah. that's what I'm excited about. You've been such an intricate part of Operation Code. Um, and you and I met through some other circumstances, but I, what I've been what's been exciting to see is your tenacity to really be a part, not only just be a part of the community, but, but just um, that give first mentality, right? Like uh, how, how much has that shaped your, uh, your ability to be a better entrepreneur? Oh yeah. I had this conversation with uh, uh, Conrad Holloman the other day. And if you guys don't know Conrad, he's from Techstars and he's the executive director of operation code. And, you know, um, I actually said to him, I like not having a title or being on the board at Operation Code because that means to me that I'm giving and not receiving anything. Like, I know I'm not doing it because of a title or because of some accolade or because of some achievement. To me, giving back to other veterans, military community, the military spouses, you have to do it from a place where it's completely pure and you're not asking for anything in return. And when you're mentoring other people, 
you get to plant a seed in them and to watch their lives grow. And, you know, that's like the greatest reward ever. Like it, you, you can't put a dollar sign on that, you know, and to be honest, like I love what I do at Operation Code and what I do just in general for volunteering almost, almost as much as my business because it's like, or even more so because of the fact that like when you're working a business, sometimes it's just toil. Sometimes every day it's like, oh man, I love what I do, but it's a grind. You know, when you're volunteering with people it can it can also be a grind but like you know that you're doing something to change somebody's life and like again I go back to I circle back to this idea of like I wish I had this when I was younger or I wish I had that mentor when I was younger because I I might not have struggled for those <laughs> for the years that I did you know there were many many years like people look at me now and they go oh, well yeah you never struggled but they didn't see when when I first came back from deployment and I was barely functional um, or when I was drinking and really right. like not healthy, like people don't see that side of me. And I'm very um, open about that experience because I think that if we shut off and compartmentalize who we are as people, then we're not being authentic, not only to ourselves, but we're not being authentic to the people that we could be helping. And so, um, you know, everybody who wants to be an entrepreneur or are an entrepreneur, there's kind of like this there's almost like this facade of like, I've got to have it all together and I can't have any problems. Yeah. But that is completely the opposite of, of my, the morale of who I am, because I think that you need to bring to the table um, your failures, the struggles that you have, the things that you're still learning, you know, um, yeah. especially as a parent, like I've got um, older kids, but teenagers and young adults and, and being able to share that, like my, my kid's getting an F and he's not paying attention to the teacher. Like just frustrating yeah. things that, that you can share as a parent that you're not polished. You're not going to have it all together. Right. And, um, and I think that's what makes you human. You know, it connects you with other people. Yeah. I, we're going to, uh, we're going to cover this very subject, just making sure that founders understand that it's okay not to be okay. People who hadn't seen me in a while be like, Hey, how you doing? My line would be every single time be like living the dream. Right. And uh, it's just that wall that founders put up that everything's great. Cynthia, where can people find you online? The best way to connect with me actually is on LinkedIn, Cynthia S-K-O-K-A-O. Um, I'm really, I, you know, since COVID hit, like I've been completely off social media except for work stuff. So yeah. um, just LinkedIn. It's more personal. You can hit me up, uh, DM me and I'll always respond. I love it. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're, you're with us. Just welcome. Thanks for having me, Josh. Yeah. You've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast. Uh, tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific on the StartupRadioNetwork.com. Listen, learn, get stuff done. We'll see you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.